Thank you all very much uh, for coming here uh, tonight. My name is uh, Amnon Aran. I'm a lecturer at uh, the Department of International Politics at City University. Uh, but tonight, I'm assuming a slightly different role, and it gives me a great pleasure uh, to welcome everybody to this, uh, what I am sure will be an intriguing event um, organized by the Middle East Center here at the LSE, and indeed a testament of the Middle Center's uh, conviction to broaden the parameters uh, of the debate on the Middle East. Uh, and have what we might call uh, a sensible and informed debate on the region, some, something we sometimes uh, miss, unfortunately. Um, I think tonight we're especially privileged uh, to have with us uh, Gidon Levy. Um, Gidon Levy uh, joined the Israeli daily Haaretz in uh, 1982, um, and he spent four years as the newspaper's uh, deputy editor. Um, he's the author of the weekly Twilight Zone uh, feature, which covers uh, the Israeli occupation of the uh, West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and he has, he has been doing so for the past uh, 25 years. Um, and he's also uh, the writer of various political editorials of the newspaper. And those of you who will follow the writing of Gidon Levy, if I may say so, will note that he's not only a voice uh, concerning the Israeli uh, occupation, but also speaks uh, on various issues concerning uh, oppression, whether they are gendered or socioeconomic, and his voice is a voice that should be heard loud. Um, not surprisingly, Gidon Levy was the recipient of uh, numerous prizes, uh, the Euromed Journalist Prize for 2008, the Leipzig um, Freedom Prize in 2001, uh, the Israeli Asso uh, Journalist Union Prize in 1997, uh, and the Association of Human Rights in Israel Award for 1996. Um, we are very, very fortunate also to have uh, Gidon Levy's new book, uh, the Punishment of Gaza uh, on sale here, which has just been published by Verso. And if people want to buy uh, copies of the book, they will be on sale here um, after the talk. Um, I believe uh, Guido Levy will speak for approximately 45 minutes, uh, after which we will open the floor for questions. And for the very late arrivals, there are still uh, seats over here in the front. Um, and without any further ado, please uh, join me in welcoming Guido Levy to today's lecture. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming here. Can you hear me well? Can I stand straight? Do I have to lean? I think in the back, can you hear? Can you hear me? Yes. So, so. Maybe it's better you don't hear me. <laughs> uh, or maybe I will be sitting. I'll be sitting and then you'll hear me, okay? That's better. So, excuse me for sitting, but. Uh, I, I can tell you one thing. Uh, would I appear tonight in the Tel Aviv University, my hometown, there would not be such a turnout like here. Uh, I'm not sure that in Israel they would be willing to listen to me like I'm amazed here again and again in the UK in the level of curiosity and, and knowledge of people in the Middle East, in what's going on. Uh, maybe more than in any other country I'm traveling around and Again and again, I'm amazed in the UK. <clears throat> I would like to start with, uh, let's wait until everyone will be seated. There are still here some places.
I would like to say a few words about my background because I think it has a lot to do with the topic that we are dealing with tonight. I was born in Tel Aviv. I was brought up as a good boy Tel Aviv, a typical product of the Israeli education system, of the Israeli media. I was brought up to believe that the Israelis are always right, the Arabs are always wrong, the Israelis are the one and only victim around, the ultimate victim. I was brought up to believe that we are the chosen people, better than any other people in the world. I remember back in 67, going to the occupied territories, I was then 14, and I remember every detail in this tour of mine with my parents in 67. There's only one thing I didn't see in this tour, and this was human beings. I didn't see them. I remember each stone, I remember the visit in the Wailing Wall, the first visit, I remember the Rachel Tomb, I remember Hebron, I remember Nablus, I don't remember seeing people. And it was so typical. And it was only when I started to go to the occupied territories in the late 80s, when I realized that the big drama of Israel is taking place in its dark backyard, that the big drama of Israel is quite hidden for the Israelis, and then I decided to take upon myself this quite ungrateful mission, journalistic mission, to try to the, tell the Israelis a story that they don't want to know, to try to tell the Israelis a stories that they know so little about, and to try to tell a story which stands against a very massive and efficient machinery of brainwash, which is so efficient, which created a very, very special situation which I don't think had ever be happened before. Because I can tell you, they were, and you know it, there were longer occupations than the Israeli occupation. There were even more brutal occupations than the Israeli occupation. But I don't recall one example in which an occupation made the occupier feel so good about himself. And more than this, there is no one example in history in which the occupier presents himself as the victim. And it was for many years that I asked myself, how come that Israel and Israelis feel so good about themselves? How come that there are no moral doubts, question marks, no discussion in the recent 10 years or so, there's no public discussion about the occupation. The occupation is totally not on the Israeli agenda. Nobody deals with it, nobody talks about it, nobody cares about it. Most of Israelis have never been to the occupied territories. How come that this is possible that such a brutal occupation is lasting for so many years when the occupier feels so good about himself?
How come that the Israelis can see that the entire world, but really now the entire world, is speaking in one language, and Israel is speaking in another language, and Israel is any average Israeli is deeply convinced that the world is wrong and we are right. I wrote once that Israelis are sure that 7 million Israelis or 5 million Jewish Israelis are right and 7 billion people of the world are wrong. And it was really in a late stage when I came to the conclusion that there must be something that helps us to feel so good about ourselves and to conduct this occupation. And it was once when I was standing in the Kalandia checkpoint, the checkpoint between Ramallah and Jerusalem, many, many years ago, when it still looked different than today. Everything was full with garbage, dust, mud, hundreds of Palestinians waiting to cross from Ramallah or to Ramallah without any roof, without any, any place to protect themselves, no toilets, nothing. And I asked myself on this Sunday morning, it was Sunday morning, I remember it so clearly, why, 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 do, why aren't there toilets here? Why isn't here a roof, something to protect the people from the sun, from the rain? It cannot be just a question of budget. And then somehow I came to the conclusion that there is nothing that might remind the soldiers that they are confronting human beings. Nothing that might remind them that the people who are in front of them are similar to them. And I truly believe that there is a whole systematic machinery which dehumanized the Palestinians not in the sake of dehumanizing them but in the sake of maintaining the occupation for so many years without having any moral doubts. Because some of you, I guess, know Israelis, met Israelis. As you might know, they are not monsters. In any uh, crisis overseas, Israel is sending the first rescue missions. Would it be floods or earthquakes? You will always see the Israelis sending the first field hospital. Israeli mission will be almost the first one to be there. Any young Israeli would help any old lady to cross the road, many times even if she doesn't want to cross the road, <laughs> because there are people with values. So what's happening when it comes to the Palestinians, when it comes to the occupation, people who are ready to donate money, to volunteer, to go for rescue missions. How come that when it comes to our own backyard, new rules of the game? And the answer to it, in my view, is this, the humanization, which is an ongoing process, which is taking place in any possible system or social agency, but above all in the Israeli media, which is a very free media and a very professional one. No censorship, almost not at all. No pressures 
only something which is much worse than this, and this is self-censorship. The idea that we should please our readers and our viewers and not bother them too much. And throughout this dehumanization, we really can feel so good about ourselves and do such terrible things as we have been doing. And therefore, I took upon myself this very modest mission as a journalist to try to, if I may say so, rehumanize the Palestinians, which is almost an impossible mission for the Israeli readership. I remember once I stood in a checkpoint next to Janine many years ago, and the car before my car was a Palestinian ambulance. And I stood and waited 15 minutes, half an hour, 45 minutes. After 45 minutes, I couldn't take it anymore, and I got out of the car. First, I went to the ambulance driver and asked him what's going on. So he said, that's the routine. They let us wait. He, he said it in Hebrew. They dry us for one hour. The soldiers were playing begamon in the tent. And then really, I couldn't take it anymore. I'm always very careful because I know I have this tendency to lose my temper. So usually, I send my photographer to deal with the soldiers because this can end up very badly, but this time I couldn't take it anymore. And I went to the soldiers. And I asked them only one question which really freaked them out. I asked those young soldiers of 19 what would have happened if, the, if this ambulance, your father or your mother, was lying. And this question freaked them out, imbalanced them. They almost shot me. They even directed their guns toward me. How can I dare? And the same question I asked once Ehud Barak, before he became prime minister on TV. Ask him, Ehud Barak, what would have happened if you would have been born Palestinian? And he gave me the only honest answer. He said I would have joined the terror, a terror organization. And then it became a huge scandal. But my main mission was always to try to bring the Israelis to put themselves in the place of the Palestinians. But this is so impossible because if the Palestinians are not human beings like us, how can you dare to ask us to put ourselves in their position? <clears throat> Add to this the one and only religion of Israel. Israel is religious in many aspects, but the unofficial religion of Israel is called security. And this religious can justify anything. Anything can be justified by security. And don't you dare to put any doubts or raise any questions. And under this religion, most of the Israelis, I, I, I didn't check it, but I can tell you the majority of Israelis are deeply, deeply convinced that the IDF, the Israeli army, is the most moral army in the world. Many times I try to put some doubts and I say, maybe it's the second moral army in the world, not the first one. <laughs> Let's say 
the army of Liechtenstein. I don't know if Liechtenstein has an army, <laughs> but let's say the army of Liechtenstein is the first moral army in the world and Israel is the second. Israelis will be deeply insulted. How can you dare to say that we are not the most moral army in the world? They are deeply convinced that we are the most moral army in the world. As funny as it sounds here or from any place of, of, of rationality. So, and for this, the contribution of the media and the education system is really nobody can exaggerate about the role of the media, the Israeli media, and the education system from the very beginning, from the very beginning of the establishment of the state, when we were always taught only one narrative and never taught the other one, and from the first days of the occupation, when even calling the occupied territories, occupied territories was unheard of. Only few leftists, you know, weirdos, would call them occupied territories. They were liberated territories. And we truly believed in it. Because this is what we were told. And then comes the other aspect, and this is the world. The world, Israelis cannot ignore it anymore, does not see eye to eye, if to use an understatement, with Israel. Public opinions everywhere, governments less than public opinions, but also more and more. Do you think it bothers the Israelis? I don't think so. Because also here we, are, we have built ourselves a world of our own. If the world criticizes us, so either he is anti-Semitic, and then it's not our fault, it's the world's fault, or the world is against us anyhow, so why would we bother? And by this we released ourselves, we Israelis, from any responsibility, because the world is anyhow against us. You can add to this this unforgettable phrase of the unforgettable late Golda Meir who once said that after the Holocaust the Jews have the right to do whatever they want which is quite deeply rooted in Israel at least in the older generation and then you get the whole picture which includes the humanizing the Palestinians believing that the world is against us in any case believing that we are the chosen people, that we are better, believing that international law is synonym, synonym to anti-Semitism. In Israel, it's perceived as really international law, not for us. The fact that the international law in its present um, form was created after World War II, because what happened in World War II is quite ignored. And then you get a picture of a society which is getting more and more nationalistic, more and more disconnected from the world, in many ways arrogant, in many ways ignoring different voices and even fighting it. I think the turning point was Operation Cast Lead. It was the turning point of the world toward Israel. And anything after Cast Lead 
is being perceived in the world differently than before. And the best proof is the Avi Marmara, the Turkish flotilla, which uh, in many ways was a repetition of cast lead. It was again the same similar principles that had guided Israel. We have the right to do whatever we want, any place, including international water. The language is the language of force. Anyone is an enemy. Anyone wants to destroy us. You know, in, in Israeli eyes, all the activists on the flotilla were terrorists and were defined as terrorists. The fact that terrorism has a very clear definition and nothing about those activists. They might be terror supporters or terror uh, sympathizers, but they were not terrorists. But in the Israeli media, they were called terrorists. And then there is no problem in killing eight of them. So this turning point of caste led in the world somehow passed the Israeli society. If you think that after caste led, there are more moral questions, not at all. Any question mark was immediately delegitimized. Any question mark coming from within the Israeli society. NGOs, Israeli ones, <clears throat> human rights activists, human rights organizations, were all delegitimized. De even very reliable one and very effective one, I would thought. I always thought that if those voices will come from soldiers, this will maybe make a difference. So f I remember still 20, 30 years ago, there were some scholars in Israel who said, if there will be only 300 refuseniks, 300 officers who will refuse, the occupation will come to its end. And we had by now many, many refuseniks. One of them is sitting with us tonight here, who went to jail and didn't have any effect because they were so much delegitimized. Same for an organization like Breaking the Silence, which brought testimonies by soldiers, from soldiers. One could expect that this will put some kind of question mark in front of the Israeli society, nothing. They were de delegitimized, and the Israeli society continued on one hand with its blindness, on the other hand with its apathy. You, you are too young to remember, but in the 70s, the joke was that two Israelis share three views. Those Friday night uh, discussions, maybe you remember them, so vivid, so stormy, and what was the subject? What shall we do with the occupied territories? Everyone was discussing what to do, even if they didn't, were not called occupied territories, what to do with the territories. Today, as I said before, it's, it's totally not on the table, not on the agenda, at all not. And Israel, 10 years ago, the Israeli society went into a stage of, I would call it coma, you are, most of you, too young to know. You are not parents yet. But if a baby is crying, usually there is no 
is to worry too much. But if a baby starts to stare in apathy, usually this is a sign of a serious condition and then you have to rush to the emergency room. I think the Israeli society in the last 10 years, ever since 2000, is really in this condition of coma, of staring, of total indifference, hardly any protest, hardly any demonstration, except of very devoted groups, but very small one, and being marginalized, as I said. All this brings us to this wonderful, promising conclusion that don't expect any change to come from within the Israeli society. I don't see it happening. Add to this the good life in Israel, and life is very good in Israel. Go to Tel Aviv and see the wonderful life in Tel Aviv. And you can ask yourself, why would Israel go for a change? Why would Israelis care at all about the occupation, about the Palestinians? Add to this the Second Intifada, which was very violent, the suicide bombers, the exploding buses, which made even the so-called Israeli left to leave its positions and to say, okay, with those monsters we don't discuss, with those monsters we will never sit down, and let's forget about peace and forget about end of occupation, and let's dedicate our life to have better lives in Tel Aviv, to buy a better jeep, to go for a better vacation, to buy a nicer house, and let's forget about it. Because some of you might remember that in the year of 82, when there was the massacre in Sabra and Shatila, which was not done directly by Israeli soldiers, mythological 400,000 Israelis went to the street to demonstrate and to protest. If this massacre would have happened today, there wouldn't be 400 Israelis in the streets. And this maybe show you the change that the Israeli society went through those almost 30 years. In the year of 2000, Israelis also were told that there is no Palestinian partner by their prime minister who promised them a morning of a new dawn, Ehud Barak, who came back from Camp David with one conclusion, there is no Palestinian partner. And then came the second intifada, and the Israeli left, most of it died or got into a coma, which he never recovered until today. The excuses were so many, but the conclusion is one. A left movement, which can be smashed so easily, was not very solid before. And our hopes from movements like Peace Now and parties like Merits were really upgraded because in the first test they totally collapsed. We are facing today a parliament, the Israeli Knesset, 120 members, out of the 110 Jewish members. It's the first time in the history of Israel that none of the members of the Knesset is holding the struggle against occupation as his first ticket. Even not one member of the parliament.
which can tell you something about how important is the occupation in the Israeli society. There are some anti-occupation members of parliament, but none of them took it as his first ticket, as his first flag to be raised. This we never had before, because in former parliaments there were always five, six, seven at least Jewish members of parliament who saw the fight against, the struggle against occupation as the main cause. Not anymore. Why should they? Life is so good. The Israelis care so little. The world is paying uh, lip service, but not much more. The world is critical, but anyhow the world is against us and is anti-Semitic. So why would we bother? And Israeli society really went more and more to look at itself and not to look to the outside and to in many ways to lose connection with reality. Usually you hospitalize people who lose connection with reality. But it's very hard to hospitalize a society. I can ensure you that any Israeli you will meet, or almost any Israeli you will meet, will tell you that, yes, the occupation must end one day, but not now. There is no partner. There was never a partner. I still remember days when Israel, officially Israel, say there is only one obstacle for peace, Yasser Arafat. Once we get rid of Yasser Arafat, the way will be open for peace. Then Yasser Arafat died one way or the other. Then came Abu Mazen. You don't expect us to do peace with Abu Mazen. He was too weak. Israel claimed that yeah, Abu Mazen is too weak. We can't do peace with him. And then God was generous enough to bring us Hamas. Okay, with them, you for sure you don't expect us to negotiate with those terrorists. Then, in the late 90s, we asked the Palestinians only one small condition, to change the amendment of the Palestinian covenant. Remember, President Clinton went all the way to Gaza, to this historical session in which the PLO changed the amendment. This was a main condition of Israel. Then Israel said, no, no, but they don't mean it. They change it, but they don't mean it. And now the Israeli imagination, which is very creative, one should say, invented a new condition. They have to recognize as, us as a Jewish state. You don't mean that we will get out of the territories if they don't recognize us as a Jewish, Jewish state. We could make, we could have made, and we made peace with Egypt without raising this stupid condition. We made peace with Jordan without raising this stupid condition. But with the Palestinians it's different. And I can ensure you that one day the Palestinians will recognize Israel as a Jewish state, maybe as a halakha state, a religious state, and maybe as a chosen people and chosen state, and there will be a new condition. Because what is at stake, and let's be very clear and very fair, 
The only real question which is on the table is, is Israel willing to put an end to the occupation or not? And in my view, all the rest is minor. Once Israel will be ready to put, sincerely and genuinely, an end to the occupation, many things that look now so complicated will be found unimportant or less important. The problem is that this is becoming irrelevant, more and more so. And the two-state solution that many of us supported is becoming yesterday's game. And uh, I don't see, and I don't think that anyone in Israel really believes that there can be an Israeli leadership who will evacuate 300,000 settlers. As powerful as they are, as noisy as they are, as violent as they are, I don't see the leadership who will be able to do so. But I have to leave it some kind of chance. Even though I'm very skeptical, I truly believe it's much too late. We are, as you call it in uh, football, in injury time. And maybe this chance is over as well. And then you ask yourself, okay, so what, what else is left? And I can ensure you that, and I do this exercise with any Israeli right-winger, it's very easy. Any Israeli right-winger you meet, just ask him, okay, from the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, until the last activist, just one question. We'll follow your line. We'll do everything you say. Everything that you wish will happen. How do you foresee Israel in 20 years? Not in 100 years. In 20 years, which is nothing. And you will never get an answer. Because there is no answer. <clears throat> a few months ago I was in a conference with the ex-chief uh, negotiator of the Palestinian Cybericat. And he told me he negotiated with all the Israeli Prime Minister by now. He negotiated with Israeli Prime Minister who cared about the security of Israel in 300 years. And he said, I could respect it. But now I deal with a Prime Minister who cares about the next news show at 9 o'clock in the evening. And this will not lead us anywhere. And I would like to say one last word about friendship toward Israel, about caring about Israel, and about the role of the world. Because many times I'm accused in Israel, I mean, I'm, I'm accused for so many things, but one of the things that I'm accused, that I'm a traitor. But I'm not the story. The story is how Israel is perceiving friends and how Israel is perceiving enemies or traitors. And there is not, I, I can't imagine myself a bigger joke to Israeli ears rather than to tell them that I consider myself as an Israeli patriot, and I do. But friendship, in my view, is caring about your friend. And I truly believe that many people in the world, not all of them, but many people in the world, in the Western world, really care about Israel. 
and really accept Israel and really want Israel to remain. The problem with friendship is, and you can ask yourself about your own personal friends, there are two kinds of friends. One is this automatic blind friend who supports you with whatever you do and tells and praises you, whatever you do, he says, ah, you were wonderful. I can ensure you that deep in, deep in your mind you know that he is not a real friend. The other one is the one who is courageous enough also to criticize you when it's needed and to tell you you went wrong. Or take another example about a drug addict. God forbid one of your friends or members of family became drug addicted. There are two ways to handle him. One is to supply him with money and to send him to buy more and more drugs, he will be very grateful. But this is not friendship and this is not taking care of him. The other way is to try to send him to a rehabilitation center. He will be very furious at you. He will be very angry at you. But this is really taking care of him. And this is really loving him. I don't think that anyone can have any doubt that Israel is occupation addicted. This by far is not questioned anymore after 43 years of occupation, after 43 years of making the occupied territories as part and parcel of Israel. Nobody can claim that Israel is really, that the occupation is really something temporary. Israel exists so many years more with the occupation rather than without it. So nobody really can seriously claim that this is just the solution is behind the corner and Israel is not addicted to the occupation. And here I say that anyone who really wants to be Israel's friend has to raise his voice against the occupation has to help Israel because Israel will not help to itself and the Israeli society for sure not will go for a change and I truly believe that what's happening now in the Middle East might change the whole game because any Arab citizen today including any Palestinian see what's going on see how people's say the word and were quite successful. We don't know yet, we are still in the eye of the storm, we don't know yet how it will end. But tyrannies will and cannot last forever. And the world will not accept tyrannies, especially not after what happened. And can anybody deny that the Israeli occupation is a tyranny? Can anybody deny that under this tyranny millions of people are living without any basic rights? Can anybody seriously claim that Israel is a democracy when all this is happening in its backyard, under its government, under its rule? You know, you know by now that you can't be half pregnant. Many times we would like to be half pregnant maybe, but it doesn't work. Either you are pregnant or not. Either you are democratic or not. And I cannot accept it that Israel, which is a democracy for its Jewish citizens, no doubt, 
But I cannot accept that you will perceive a regime only, you will examine it only according to his attitude toward one part of the population or in certain geographic borders. So this tyranny will have to come to its end one way or the other, like many other tyrannies. And now it's time for Israel, again I can say it and uh, nobody will listen obviously, but now it's exactly maybe the last minute for Israel to try to be accepted in the Middle East, which Israel was never. Because Israel was accepted by some regimes, but never by the peoples. And Israelis must wake up, must wake up to understand that the Arab world is watching the occupation for decades now and cannot remain indifferent and will not remain indifferent. Watching the scenes, you know, I don't like to make comparisons and what is happening now in Libya is terrible. But in the first days of Libya, only, and I must ex really uh, uh, emphasize, the first days of Libya, the world was already very shocked by airplanes which are bombing civil population, demonstrators which are shot dead, helicopters which shoot into civil population. Isn't it the same? Wasn't it the same in Castled? Even though for Israelis to say so would be unheard of, how can you compare? Why not? Wasn't Israel shooting civil population in Castled? Wasn't it using airplanes and helicopters to do so? Aren't demonstrators being shot in Israel until this very day? In different figures, obviously. But, and can it continue like this? And for how long? So, to conclude my uh, opening remarks, I would really like to come to LSE and to tell you I'm a proud Israeli but I'm not a proud Israeli. I would love to come and tell you how proud I am in my country, and I'm quite ashamed. Today there was a survey published by the BBC, which was made in 28 countries, I think. 27,000 people were asked about the places which are have positive effect on the world and the, the countries that are having negative effect on the world. Somehow Germany was number one. But the, I was looking at the last four states in the world. And they were Iran and Pakistan and North Korea and Israel. And I truly believe that this should bother any Israeli. And unfortunately, so many Israelis, so many Israelis choose to ignore it, choose to close their eyes, choose to get addicted to the brainwash, 
to the propaganda, to the lies. And in my view, all those who participate in this masquerade are not Israeli patriots, are not Israeli friends. And I'm very afraid that if this will continue like this, it will blow up in our faces one day with all the respect to the friendship with Micronesia and with all the respect to the friendship with the United States, which even last week was proven as a blind automatic friend of Israel. After everything happened in the Arab world, still the United States puts a veto on a resolution against the settlements, not against Israel, against the settlements, which no country in the world recognizes. But all this cannot last forever. And would I be in an influential posi position in Israel, which I'm not, I would have been very worried, and I would have done exactly the opposite of what Israel is doing in the last 42 years, and in the last 10 years, and in the last years. But unfortunately, to expect a change from within the Israeli society right now, <clears throat> is almost ridiculous. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. I think this is really a rare example of a talk that can so succinctly, but also passionately, um, look into so many dimensions uh, relating to Israeli society and the occupation from the processes of dehumanization and denial through the decisive role of security and nationalism, but also the good life that exists uh, in Israel and in Tel Aviv, uh, through the relationships between Israel and the world, but also, and very importantly, perhaps the change, the change that Israel had undergone perhaps in the last uh, two decades. Uh, and I'm sure that this gives uh, a lot of room for questions, and uh, Guido Levy will now kindly take uh, questions. Um, is it okay if we take them one at a time? Sure. Yeah, okay, so the floor is yours. Um, if we could take maybe um, the lady over there. Please. Yeah. And if you could maybe say your name and your affiliation, that would help as well. Unfortunately, I don't think the Israeli society is watching the Palestinians at all. Most Israelis know very little about it. And there was a whole machinery which enabled them to know so little. Take, for example, the 410 destroyed villages. There's not almost one single reminder that there were Palestinian villages there. Not a sign. All the ruins, almost all the ruins are erased. Forests were planted on top of those villages. Israelis know very little about the Nakba, the Palestinian catastrophe, and it's not even a stage in which you can say they don't care, because it's not in their awareness at all. Nothing. Now we are even facing new legislations in which mentioning the Nakba will be forbidden. I mean, there are already some drafts about it. 
So we will not even allow them to commemorate. And also today they are very limited in what they can mention publicly and what can they do or visit or rehabilitate. You know, there are here and there ruins that Palestinians are trying to rehabilitate and it's always a big scandal. How would they dare? So I don't think that it crosses the mind of any Israeli, this comparison. And again, the dehumanization helps very much because how can you compare us to them? Can you come in over there, please? Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Sudeto Bhattacharya. I teach here. And I was 15 in 1967, also I'm old friend of Mario Rubenstein. And you know, he shares the rejection of the But I'd like to focus my thoughts on your issue of friends, particularly the US and the evolution of Abel Barak and Connecticut. And one thing that wasn't noted very much in the West was in the midst of the Egyptian uprising, if you like, Obama had invited Barak to Washington. Now, the short-term purpose might well have been to sit him down and over long distance at this point is intact by the time you call Pantawi in Egypt. But then there was a surprising declaration by your foreign minister, Lieberman, welcoming the democratization of countries like Egypt. And I wonder, as Kissinger once said, Obama is a grandmaster playing simultaneous moves games, and Kissinger's not a low ego. Is he trying to forge a coalition across Lieberman, Lebanon, Barak, or what remains of Barak? Is that a possibility? You mean Obama? Yes. I wish Obama would have been so sophisticated. <laughs> until now, until now, I must tell you, there are no signs to it in the Middle East. Unfortunately so, and I, 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 I was really with maybe much too high expectations from Obama, but I had tears in my eyes when he was elected, and I really believed we are going for a huge change. My feeling is that he is losing interest, at least on this, to these uprisings in the Arab world. He lost total interest in the Middle East. He gave up. He saw it doesn't work. He made many mistakes, and he really pulled out. For sure, he pulled out from the so-called peace process. Lost interest, you know, nothing is happening. And he saw that he can lose interest. Now, about this uh, coalition, uh, it's a possibility, but I don't think that uh, Obama will create this coalition. Barack is today almost a non-entity in political terms. He's nothing. I mean, he will survive this term, but he will never be re-elected, I mean, except of his family, also not the entire family. I don't see anybody voting for Barack. Lieberman might go to court soon, but his party is quite strong. And Kadima, here I would like to warn you, don't have too many expectations from Kadima. I think the best microscopes in the world, I don't know if LSE has a microscope, but the best microscope in the world will not find the changes, the differences between Kadima and Likud, between Barak and Netanyahu and Livni. It's all about some rhetorics, niceties. Livni will be hugged by the world. Netanyahu is being condemned. But when it comes to the basic issues, the differences are very, very small. So even if you are right, does it lead us to anywhere? I'm afraid no.
Um, over there, please. Yeah. Are you allowed here? <laughs> okay. Um, I wanted to ask you to what extent the Israeli combat today is due to a national religious group like Russian uh, It's always a mystery how the settlers with Gushamunim, which was their ideological engine, succeeded to blackmail government after government in Israel, left or right or so-called left or so-called right. Any government is really scared. Their political power is unbelievable. The pressure power is unbelievable. And I always say that I have no, no uh, complaints toward them. I'm always, it's not about the settlers, it's about those who enabled this project to become what it became. It's those who enabled them to have this unbelievable power. But you must remember that those settlers, these Gushemunim, they are today, unfortunately, almost the only active group in the society, except of some <coughs> radical left groups, which again, I have all the admiration toward them, but they are very small and very marginal. The settlers are the only real active group in the society, the settlers and the ultra-Orthodox, but the ultra-Orthodox care about different things and the settlers care about different things. And sure, if we would have the settlers, the occupation would have ended long time ago. The settlement project came to the world in order to prevent any kind of settlement. And it's a hell of success. And it's succeeding to prevent the settlement. If there wouldn't be the settlements, Israel, the occupation wouldn't be there anymore. And they are strong, and any Israeli politician is scared of them. And I think they are a paper tiger. I think that we saw in the evacuation from Gaza they were threatening and threatening and bloodshed and civil war and there was nothing. I think they are much weaker than we think. But when the entire society and the political elite is so scared by them, their power is being preserved. I'm going to take some from the back. So could we have the lady over there and perhaps after the gentleman right at the back, yeah. <coughs> I'm Jeff Dow, I'm a master's student here in global politics. Um, you mentioned briefly at the beginning about the academic institutions of Israel being complicit in the occupation. Um, so in that regard, I was curious of your opinion on the academic boycott against Israel and whether this is legitimate as well as an effective tactic. <clears throat> First of all, the boycott is totally legitimate, and any Israeli cannot uh, claim that boycott is not a legitimate uh, weapon when Israel is using it so much. What is the siege of Gaza if not a boycott? What is the boycott of, Ham of Hamas if not a boycott? What in the Jewish world is a boycott about a restaurant which is not kosher if not a boycott? I mean, boycott is, has a long history in Jewish heritage, and boycott was used by Israel and is being used by Israel. And Israel was also um, a victim of boycott, the Arab boycott in the 60s and the 70s, when we 
could not have Coca-Cola in Israel and uh, McDonald's, and maybe it was much better without, but <laughs> this is too late. So first of all, it's a legitimate uh, weapon. Now, the real question is, is it an efficient weapon, an effective weapon? I can very easily understand the sentiment to punish the Israelis. I can very easily understand. Many times I feel like punishing the Israelis, making the Israelis pay a price for the occupation. And maybe even as a wake-up call. I just met last week the deputy president of the Johannesburg University. And he told me that there was nothing like the boycott in sport which affected so much the apartheid regime in South Africa because South Africa is uh, so good in sport. Unfortunately, Israel is not so good in sport, <laughs> so I wouldn't go for this. And there are many Israelis who think that if Israelis will be prevented of getting to the sales in Selfridges, the occupation will come to its end. <laughs> Just prevent them from Galerie Lafayette, Selfridges and Macy's, especially in the sales season, and you've got it. I'm not sure. And let's take another example. The terror. The Second Intifada was, in Israeli terms, very, very cruel. And Israelis paid a hell of a price. And let's not underestimate it. Life in Tel Aviv, in Jerusalem, everywhere was very fearful. Many people were killed. Unlikely the Qassams, which are by far exaggerated. Life in the Second Intifada was really tough. A price that Israelis paid for the occupation. Did it make the Israelis more flexible, more willing to put an end to the occupation? Not at all. On the contrary, it made them more nationalistic, more radical, more right-wing. Why? Because nobody dared to make the connection between the occupation and the price, the occupation and the terror. Because again, the whole machinery explained the Israelis that terror means that the Palestinians are monsters, that they were born to kill, and nobody would dare, and if I would dare to do it, I would be always condemned, dare to ask, let's ask why an 18 or 19-year-old Palestinian is ready to sacrifice everything, including his life. There must be a reason for it. But this is not legitimate to be asked in Israel. So because there was no connection between the sin and the price, it was not effective. It was even counterproductive. About the boycott, I don't know if it will be productive. I don't know if it will be effective. Sincerely, I don't know. Not that I think that it will be or not. And therefore, I don't join this campaign, even though I totally understand its motivation, and I totally accept its motivations. I just would like, I mean, if someone wouldn't show me that it will be effective, I would join it with, with, with no doubts. The only, my only fear is that it might also push the Israelis even to become more nationalistic. And one last word, it's also directed now against the wrong ones. I mean, against the academia, for example. 
I mean, I wouldn't put the, the Israeli academia as the first in the row of uh, war criminals in Israel, even though the academia is collaborating with the occupation. And here I must say, the entire Israeli society takes part and collaborates with the occupation. The occupation is not only of the settlers, not only of the soldiers, not only of the secret services, not only of, of the, the military, and it's a project with the collaboration of the entire Israeli society. Doctors and architects, uh, uh, industry and engineers, judges, the legal system, the education system, you name it. They are all there and they are all collaborating, and the universities are collaborating with it, but in s different levels. So, me who does not boycott Israel, uh, who does not buy uh, products from the occupied territories, obviously, but I do buy Israeli products and I do live in Israel and I do participate in the game. I don't feel so very comfortable, that's the truth, to call others to do what I don't do because I don't boycott Israel, that's the matter of fact. But having said all this, I know it's not a very clear answer because I don't have a very clear answer, but to understand the motivation, to understand the logic of it, by all means, yes. Um, yeah, we have that gentleman over there, and then we'll move forward, I promise. Uh, hi, uh, I'm a master's student here at uh, doing uh, international development. Uh, I was in Jerusalem last Easter when tensions between Israel and the States were quite uh, high, there was uh, a lot of rambling. Uh, and a lot of comments that I heard were things like, we don't need them, we'll go it alone. Uh, so my question is, uh, can Israel go it alone without um, American support, either uh, moral support or um, financial support? Not even for one single day. Not even for one single day. And therefore, it is so crucial and so, may I say so, even criminal, if the United States will lose interest and pull out and not be active. Israel was never so depending on the United States like now, never before, because Israel was never so isolated like today. And it's not only about military, it's not only about economically, it's above all politically. Israel today, and it's, it, it should have bothered any Israeli, and it doesn't. Israel is so depending on the United States. The problem is that uh, American politics is still much too influenced by Christian and Jewish lobbies, which are much too powerful, and they don't create any good to Israel. Those are not Israeli friends, in my view. But those right-wingers, those nationalistic who told you in Jerusalem, we can go without the United States. Let them be one day without the United States. The first American air, 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 aircraft, which will have some problem, Israel depends on the last spare parts, on anything 
you can imagine yourself. And what will be in the international arena without the United States? I know we have Micronesia, I repeat, and we highly appreciate the friendship of Mic the Micronesian people, but it will not be enough, no. Um, yeah, um, could we have the lady over there and then over here in the middle, please? Okay. Such simple questions. Huh. <laughs> really, in two minutes I'll answer all your questions. First, I want to uh, say something about, you, about you, what you mentioned about the Operation Cast Lead. The problem is that those soldiers are human beings. Would they know they are monsters? Maybe it would be much easier. 
It's much more complex because they are human beings, because in many other fields they might be quite nice people with values. Therefore, it's much more horrible what they have done. And I'll give you one example. In the weeks I was prevented to go to Gaza, unfortunately I can't go there ever since 2006, and there is no place in the world I would love to visit like I would like to go to Gaza, but I can't go there. So I went in Kastled to the area surrounding Gaza. I was standing there and talking to my friends in Gaza and it was really surreal. But I will never forget the Israelis who came on Saturdays with their jeeps, with their families, with their children to show them the bombs that are falling on Gaza. I never saw such, in, in many ways this was maybe my worst experience in this war. That we got to this situation in which Israelis are going to show their children and they were applauding. Each time there was smoke coming out of Gaza, they were applauding. So yes, it is a real sign of sickness. I can't say anything but this. Now, about uh, uh, how to, uh, first of all, I didn't say the boycott will not be effective. I just said this must be the main question. Will it be effective or not? I really don't know. I think, unfortunately, that the key is in the hands of Washington. I wish it wouldn't be. But I think that the key is in Washington. And the day that the United States will really want to push Israel out of the occupation, Israel will not have any other choice. And here it will be effective. The problem is that Washington is not answering. Washington is not understanding yet. And maybe an effective boycott campaign will have, will bring Israel to change its policy. Israel is uh, depending also on Europe in trade. The EU is the biggest client of Israeli products. But I'm, I'm really, I'm not so decisive about it because I'm afraid that it will just push Israel more to the corner. But time will show. Anyhow, the BDS is on its way. I mean, it's a campaign which was launched already, is perceived in Israel as another expression of anti-Semitism, obviously. It's perceived as if it's another mean of delegitimizing the state of Israel, which is again a way of Israelis not to react to the criticism because they all want to destroy us. And uh, until now it has no effect whatsoever. About 4867, one state, uh, first of all it didn't start at 67, it's obvious. My problem is that it never stopped. My problem is that what happened in 48 never stopped ever since then. Same policy. I'm brief because I would like to let other ask because this could be a, another lecture. And I would love to live in one state rather than in two states. If it would have been a just, equal, democratic state, this is my dream. I'm very skeptical that it will be a just state. 
I'm very skeptical it will be an equal state. And therefore I thought that at least for the first stage we need the two-state solution in order to overbridge the gaps, the hatred, the fears between the two peoples. I don't see a one-state solution being a just state. If, if you can guarantee me it will be a just state, an equal state, a democratic state, nothing better than this. And I want to say something. I travel now for 25 years to the occupied territories, and I really, I don't meet many Palestinian politicians, but I met so many Palestinians throughout the years. Really, grassroots, not, not big names, people, victims, people who lost the day before I came, their son, people whose son was arrested the day before I came, people who were beaten, people who were humiliated, people who were... Uh, injured, I always come the day of the tragedy or one day after it. And still after all those years, I must tell you that at least the majority of them, their sentiment is to live together with Israel and to live side by side with Jews. You hear it again and again. The sentiment, not of all of them, but most of them, is why can't we live together? while the main sentiment in Israel is separation. One way or the other, we want the Palestinians that they will disappear from our eyes, that they will vanish behind walls, behind fences, whatever, but separation. And this is a major difference between the two peoples. If I would know that the Israelis wish to live together with Arabs, and do it on a just basis, it would be like a dream. Um, got one question here over there, and I'll come back here to the front then, okay? Shani um, Organa, Teacher Media and Communication. I wanted to ask you about the role of the Israeli media in this. Um, you're suggesting that they're uh, democratic, that there are hardly any censorship other than self censorship. But how viable do you think it is to expect? No, I don't expect the Israeli media to wake up the people from its coma, and that's not their, their role. But I don't expect them to be so responsible on the coma, like they are. Because, you know, if, we, if they would have been only professional, this is enough for me. I don't need the media to be recruited for a cause. Just be professional. And if you put a picture of a funeral of a dog which was killed in a villa by a Kassam in Ashkelon on the front page with story about the dog and story of the owner of the dog and the picture of its funeral and in the very same day 50 or 60 or 80 or 100 Palestinians killed is page 14. So this is not only serving a horrible cause, but it's also not professional journalism in my view. So my only request or, or condition to the Israeli media is be professional. But when it comes to the occupation, the Israeli media is not professional. It is serving a cause not in the name of ideology, by the way. 
only in the name of pleasing the readers, only in the name of not bothering them. And you know, this is not fulfilling the duty of, of media. Media is not only about writing and not only about selling copies. It's also about some kind of political and social role. The Israeli media is not fulfilling it. Okay, we've got time probably for the last two questions. So the gentleman here and the lady over there, if you could be succinct in your questions, that would help because we've got about 10 minutes left. My question is, uh, what is your message for the Palestinians themselves? First of all, I don't carry any message to anyone. Hardly I carry a message for myself, which also is not very clear. I'm really not in the position to carry messages. But I do, if I carry some message to the Israelis, for sure not to the Palestinians. I'm an Israeli. There is no symmetry. Those Israelis who say, look, they are violent, we are violent, they made some terrible mistakes, we did some terrible mistakes, try to create this impression of a symmetry. You know, two people are fighting. No, we are not there. Basically, there is the occupier and there is the occupied one. And they are not in the same position. And therefore, we have, first of all, to come with a message, as you say, to the occupier. The Palestinians made many mistakes. I, I, I'm the last one to say that everything they've done was right. But who am I to tell the Palestinians what to do when I come with not clean, no clean hands? Once I will feel that Israel had fulfilled its part, then I can come and tell the Palestinians, look, you have to do A, B, C, and D. But even if you come and judge the Palestinians for their mistakes, look, they tried everything. They tried violence, they tried peace talks, they tried terror, they tried everything. Nothing <coughs> promoted them. They are still in the same position. Um, you talked about the, the machinery operating within, inside Israeli society, the state machinery. And on the outside, um, there's also a real issue that Israel remains one of the few countries in the world where you virtually cannot have an honest, open discussion about. Um, uh, any critique of Israeli policies are routinely co-opted um, as an attack on Jewish people or other various issues. And these, these kind of dynamics are very apparent in the U.S., and they're disturbingly becoming more apparent here, including here at LSD, where professors are now becoming discredited for being critical. Um, so I want to ask you, how do you think we can effectively counteract this in practical terms? Here it's really about you more than about us. I mean, you shouldn't accept it. I know it's easy to say. I was just discussing the other day with my partner, would this uh, fashion designer from Dior say the same things about Muslims or Arabs? Would he, be, would he have been fired? You know what I'm talking about. He's English, by the way. I'm not sure. Uh, first of all, there is a difference between the United States and Europe. In Europe, things are more sensitive because of 
history because of the Holocaust. It is still there. It should not be forgotten, but it should also not be manipulated, and it is manipulated. <coughs> and I think that here it's really about you as a whole not to accept it, to stand against it. Okay, so, you know, you will be uh, labeled as anti-Semitic. I will never forget, and maybe it's a good story uh, for the end, an optimistic one. <laughs> I'm always blamed people, in this case it was free today, but many times people buy tickets to my lectures. People, the organizer tell me, look, people came out in the evening, it was so cold outside, so hot outside, spend the whole evening, give them some kind of hope, you can't send them without any hope. And I really try my best, and I never succeed, I must tell you. <laughs> so I always say, let's be realistic enough and believe in miracles. <clears throat> but it's not an optimistic uh, story. Maybe I'll find something else until the end. It was this day when I went to Gaza with a French, and it's answering your question, with a French uh, TV crew from... Um, uh, the first channel, which is a commercial channel in France. I think I mentioned it in my book. And we went to one of the worst stories I've ever documented in Gaza. It was this paralyzed woman who was living alone with her one and only daughter who was 12 or 13, I don't remember, a teenager. She was totally paralyzed. The, this woman, no father, in Really, I saw poverty, I saw terrible conditions in Gaza, but this was really the worst I saw. It. I can't even call it a tent or a house. It was really nothing. And they were sleeping in one bed, the girl in the arms of her mother, and at night there was an Israeli missile who hit the house, and the girl died in the arms of her mother. And this TV, French TV crew accompanied me this day. They made a story about my work in Gaza, and we went out, the TV journalist wanted to interview me. And he asked me, what do you feel? And I told him, look, this is one of those moments in which I'm ashamed to be an Israeli. The next day he calls me up and said, listen, I'm so sorry, we will not be able to broadcast this uh, interview. I said, maybe a technical problem. But I didn't want to, you know, French pride, uh, French technology, it cannot go wrong. <laughs> but I asked, any technical problem? No, no, he said, no technical problem. My editors say that our viewers in France will not tolerate this sentence that you say that you are ashamed to be an Israeli. The viewers in France will not tolerate this sentence of an Israeli who lives in Israel who claims that he is ashamed to be an Israeli, and it was not broadcasted. This is unacceptable. I mean, it's not for me to tell you what to do with it, because I can't do anything about it. But when I hear those things, I, I ask myself, why? And how come those are free societies here in Europe? We don't have more free societies than Western Europe. How come that it doesn't work? And then in the United States, how come that the Jewish lobby can be so powerful? And I tell you, I think that finally, as I said before, 
it will explode in our faces Jews, Israelis because more and more people will ask can't we criticize Israel? I once published an article in the Die Welt in Germany and the editor told me would you be German? I would never publish this article this was the most critical article about Israel we could publish only because you are Israeli but we would never let a German write such an article so let's put aside Germany I mean Germany is maybe different but in this country it's, it's you to struggle against it and it's even in my view Israeli friends should struggle against it and I'm amazed again and again again and again and it is a manipulation to label each criticism about Israel as anti-semitism is a very cynical manipulation to shut mouths only this and therefore you shouldn't give up and you shouldn't accept that this is anti-semitism and this and I don't say by this that there is no anti-semitism and I don't say by this that there are not anti-semitic groups and individuals who are using it but to accept any criticism as not legitimate to accept any criticism as as anti-semitic is unacceptable and you know you have to to fight on it and not to give up and not to keep silent and not to accept it that Israel should not be uh, 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 criticized or Israel is above certain things because finally you live in free societies yeah I know there are some reasons for this but this will not do any good to Israel either by all means not not a very optimistic ending, huh? No. Um, I did my best. I did my best. Uh, well, I'm afraid we're going to have to bring it down to a, clo to a close. And I'd like to thank Gidon, Level, Gidon Levy on two levels. Uh, first of all, for coming here tonight and giving us such a generous talk and generous responses to the questions. And secondly, for doing what you call this ungrateful job for the past 25 years and raising your voice and raising it loudly. And maybe to try and contribute to the sense of optimism, which I doubt we'll go out with. But thank you also for reminding us that this conflict is about human beings, and it's not about monsters. And as we know from history, human beings are capable of doing inspirational things. They're also capable of doing terrible things. Let's hope they go with the former rather than with the later in the case of Israel and the Palestinians. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.